Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 195 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Jessica Cuello. Jessica Cuello's most recent book is Yours, Creature, from Jack Leg Press, came out in May of this year. Her book, Liar, selected by Dorian Locks for the 2020 Barrow Street Book Prize, was honored with the Eugene Nasser Prize, the CNY Book Award, a finalist nod for the Housatonic Book Award, and a long list mentioned for the Julie Souk Award. Cuello is also the author of Hunt from 2017 via The Word Works and Pricking with Tiger Bark Press 2016. Cuello has been awarded the 2022 Nina Riggs Poetry Prize, two CNY Book Awards, the 2016 Washington Prize, the New Letters Poetry Prize, a Salt and Stall Fellowship, and the New Ohio Review Poetry Prize. In addition, Cuello has published three chapbooks, My Father's Bargain from 2015, by Fire 2013 and Curie 2011. In 2014, she was awarded the Decker Award from Hollins University for Outstanding Secondary Teaching. She is poetry editor at Tahoma Literary Review and teaches French in CNY. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you, Pete? Great, it's great to talk to a fellow teacher. In our, the best time of the year, right? The best time of the year. Are you Are you finding it to be fruitful for your writing or is it more like I'm gonna take a rest? Well, we finished June, like June 27th. So I'm still recovering, catching up on all the things. Right. But I will be moving into the writing portion soon. Yeah. Okay. So I'd love to talk about with Yours Creature, you know, the most recent book, you know, where to buy it, social media contact info. We want to buy this book. People are listening and they hear some great conversation about a great collection. But yeah, I don't know if there are any tour dates, that kind of stuff. Well, it came out from Jack Lake Press. And I believe you can buy it on their site. And then it's at Bookshop mm -hmm. and Amazon if you use Amazon. Tour dates. Um, well, <laughs> this is an interesting thing for poets. I've I've been discovering how much money you need to be a poet if you mm -hmm. want to read across the country. <laughs> so most of my readings have been local, places where I can drive. Sure. And um, Zoom has been a gift for that because I've done quite a few Zoom readings. And um, all my readings are on my website at jessicacuello.com. Mm -hmm. okay. So I've got a couple coming up this summer and some in the fall. Awesome. Um, your website is, is it just jessicacuello.com? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. And Cuello is spelled C-U-E-L-L-O. Yes. Jessica Cuello. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. I would love to talk about about language. You said you're a French teacher, and congrats on that on that teaching award. That's always awesome to be recognized like that. Is French a, a family language? Is that something you picked up later in life? I'd love to know about your relationship with with writing and reading, especially growing up. Well, French 
The answer to the French question is both. It mm. is a family language. My grandmother was French. She came to the United States during the German occupation mm. um, in 1941. And um, I didn't grow up speaking it, but I had a longing to speak it. I wanted to be speaking it, but I wasn't speaking it at home. So I learned it like most kids in public high school. Mm -hmm with worksheets and fill in the blank verb conjugations mm -hmm. and not much speaking. And if you did listening, it was with a tape and pedagogy has changed a lot. My students speak all of the time. Um, so that that's my relationship with French. There's more to say about that. Um, my, my relationship with language reading was reading is probably the thing that I do best in life and then mm -hmm. teaching. <laughs> um, I was a voracious reader growing up, which I think came from childhood loneliness, like a lot mm -hmm. of writers. And I used to ride my banana seat bike to the library and get a big stack of books. I'd come back, I'd read them all, take them back. Um, one time the librarian yelled at me because I returned them in the same day. She wouldn't take them. <laughs> so I had to go back home with my books. And I, I think I read a lot of the same things that many young girls did. Um, Anne of Green Gables was a series I read every summer. I just read it every summer. Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, Island of the Blue Dolphins. There was all there were so many beautiful YA books, um, literary YA books back then, mm -hmm. before pre-Harry Potter, before it exploded as a market. Right, it still right. existed in this place where it wasn't on the bestseller list. And I think it had a lot of literary beauty. Some of those, the Narnia Chronicles, Tolkien. Mm. Um, so I read many of those books. Um, and then in high school, I had very good English teachers in Syracuse Public City Schools. You know, you're a teacher, so you're going to hear me give the shout out to my <laughs> to my schools I had wonderful English teachers and I used to when I would get a book from school then I would go to that list in the back of the book where it listed all the classics I had a little bit of that hierarchical mindset when I was young that I should read all of those books because they were on that list in the back of the book so then I would write all those books down go to the library get those books out and then I would just build lists from that mm. um some of the books that i think had deep impact on me when i was a freshman in college i had this seminar it was sort of like a loosely themed i think it was women and literature for freshmen mm. it was at barnard and we had to read jamaica kincaid's annie john Ooh. which was on in the reserve list they would try to save us money. They would put books on reserve. So I went to the library to read it. I thought I'll read a little bit in the library, come back. And I remember I took that book into the cubicle and I didn't look up until it was over. And it's a small book, but I still remember how I felt reading the book. And it does connect to a lot of the themes in my poetry, the mother-daughter relationship which is in Yours Creature and a little bit in my book, Liar. 
And I could talk about all the books that (laughs) the whole interview, I could just talk about books because my relationships with books is very intimate and close, but yeah. Well, thank you for that. There's a lot there. Um, so when you say yell, I mean, the librarian literally yelled like, like, like a librarian yell, like a little bit louder or like literally yelled. She, I think she didn't like me. Um, I think she was like, it was irritating to her Okay. that I was there so often and going through so many books because okay. I think it felt unnatural to her that I would you were too precocious I know and you know I I feel like I'm betraying librarians because librarians are my favorite people same 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 they're my favorite people but Mm -hmm. I think she was the exception um (laughs) you know I and I've worked in so many schools and I'm always best friends with the librarians right my my last book was dedicated to librarians actually but i've worked with one librarian who also didn't love reading told the kids that books were obsolete so you know it's like every profession um she was a rules librarian Mm -hmm. more than a Mm -hmm. nurture kids love of reading librarian. right she liked the dewey decimal system and the 700s and the 400s and i get it okay yeah, maybe, she, maybe she's having a bad day. She was having a bad day. We'll give it, you know. May, maybe. I, I think it was, um, I grew up in a small town and, you know, people knew each other. People knew each. I felt like I was disliked by my town, that my family was Whoa. often disliked. Like, I remember being disliked by elementary teachers okay, with exceptions. And so I think there was just a little bit of meanness. Mm. I know we have this narrative that, American towns are tight knit and close and community, uh-huh. but I have always felt like there's more love in urban areas. Uh-huh. And that's, that's just personal. It's yeah. not, you know, I don't have a study to measure that, but sure. wow, I always felt more, more loved when I taught in the Bronx or when I was work, living mm. in Manhattan, mm. San Antonio, these are places I've lived. Um, and I, I teach in a, a rural district now and I, I see that, some of the kids do suffer um, from the smallness of it hmm. because there's such a pressure to belong in specific ways. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm way off task no, of no, no. poetry, but yeah. Okay. So we've got some, like some side episodes. We've got some, some writing prompts, the, that image of that image of you being shut, you know, turned away from the library. That's something else, right? That's wow. Yeah. Pictures worth a thousand words. I mean, and I then, still went back, so. <laughs> okay, good. I like the, we talking about with the pedagogy for teaching language. That's, yeah, the, the old way where I was, you know, all right, here's 15 verbs and conjugate them, go. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the real world usage, the, the CI, right? All the comprehensible input and all that in recent years, I think has been great. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a shift, yeah. I remember giving uh, at, at a school that I enjoyed, but I had to teach, um, you know, it was very prescriptive. And one Spanish two test, they had to do like something like 15 irregular present and 20 irregular past tense on one test. You know, just conjugating. Just yeah. Like, for what? You know, going through the motions. No. I think I've given that test. I, to, I mean, I've yeah. taught 27 years and I've, sure. I've probably done every kind of assessment sure, out sure, there. Sure. Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, it's, it's definitely been a shift for 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 teachers and for students. You know, just the idea of yeah, comprehensive input and all that. 
that's a discussion for a different day. But I, I again appreciate talking to a teacher. I wonder how French in particular, maybe the answer is no period, but has French in particular affected your writing? I mean, it's obviously one of the romance languages. It's, it's often seen as the a romantic language. Is there something in your writing that you could trace to French or to like, you know, these Latin-based languages? I think it's funny because I, I find that I'm more of a, you know, from the Germanic roots, the Anglo-Saxon mm -hmm. in my own diction. Okay. And I would say my poems are less Latinate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I think, I, I mean, there's French poets I love. I just translated this beautiful book um, by a Quebecois poet, Longley. Okay. And I love Rimbaud and Camus. But I, um, I really made the switch from my master's was in English ed uh -huh. way back. And I made the switch to French because I couldn't do both write poetry and teach English well. Mm. Couldn't teach writing well. It was devouring me. Mm -hmm. And so French became just a little bit easier to manage my life. Wow. That's the real reason. But yeah, I love yeah. teach I love teaching it. Yeah. Not necessarily different sides of the brain, but different kind of like compliments to each other, I guess, right? Or it's yeah, it's I remember I think it was Elizabeth Bishop. They asked her if she would teach or why doesn't she teach? And gosh, maybe it wasn't Elizabeth Bishop, but um, maybe it was Flannery O'Connor. But I remember one of them said, "I would if I had to teach, I would rather teach grammar than writing." Mm. Um, and I don't feel that, but I do feel teaching writing uh, was off. It was there's a beautiful part of teaching English, but there was a painful part. And teaching French is really beautiful and special. And partly because I have such a small class. Yeah. And they're self-selected. Uh-huh. And they've chosen it. And I tend to get a lot of theater kids and art kids. And, All right. You know. Yeah. Not to diss your Spanish classes. No, I hear you. I hear you. How, how small is small? Well, French five this year, I had nine. Oh, wow. wow. I know. That's that's small intimate yeah. intimate is the word yeah yeah the um i remember i mean i don't think i saw the name it's a, it's a heck of a talk about anglo-saxon it's almost like welsh or something but is it you know so is it mary wollstonecraft mary wollstonecraft mary wollstonecraft right i remember seeing i don't think i'd seen her name until 10 15 years ago the uh the history department worked with the english department i also teach english in doing like um you know, female hero heroes, for lack of a better word, and we're given a list of you know forty that the students could choose from. I remember seeing the name. I was like, "Whoa, interesting name." Looked her up. Never, never necessarily heard of her. Which, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's uh on my side, or if that's the the uh, the educational system. But what? So you know, yours creature is um, written in uh, epistolary form by her daughter Mary Shelley, right? Mm -hmm. of, of, who wrote Frankenstein and many other things. And much of it is dedicated, much of it, the letters are directly to Mary Wollstonecraft. I wonder about, this is my long way of getting at, um, how you get, how you got interested in these two women, what was kind of like the, uh, not the through line, but the, the entrance point. So I'm going to just respond really quickly to, um, the fact that you didn't know her and which yeah. is fascinating to me because she's almost the very first 
Western feminist. Hmm. You know, people always talk about Simone de Beauvoir, but when you read Vindications of the Rights of Women, um, she was talking about things that hadn't been said before. Hmm. Um, so I don't know why she gets overlooked so often. I encountered her um, in an 18th century literature class, and it was a great class. Um, I don't know if I would have read her. There's right. a lot of her work that I find like I'm less interested in. Um, is it is it like didactic or is it just not just not interesting? Um, it's a little sometimes a little tedious sometimes. And I, I find that about some of Mary Shelley's novels, mm. a, a little bit heavy handed. Mm. I don't find that about Frankenstein. Right. Um, and what what led me to this book? I so I had encountered Wollstonecraft in college, which was 30 years ago, maybe. And I had read Frankenstein on my own and loved it. And then I didn't really think about them for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I had insomnia three, four summers ago. Mm. And I I figured out that I couldn't sleep at night because I I was reading novels and poetry before bed. And they would just get my brain too fired up. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I need to read something that's less stimulating. That's like a little bit slower, like some nonfiction theory or biographies. So I went to the library and I got a whole bunch of literary biographies. And one of the biographies I checked out was a biography by Charlotte Gordon, who's a phenomenal biographer. And it's a, it was a dual biography mm. between Wollstonecraft and Shelley. If this has been done before, I had never seen it. Mm. And the biography moved back and forth between their lives, drawing parallels between them. And it was such a gorgeous book. Mm. And I immediate, it immediately resonated with things that were on my mind, obsessions, and so even though I had finished one book and was starting another book, this book interfered and came in the middle of that process. And I just wrote these poems mm. spurred by the biography. Then I went back and got more biographies of Shelley and um, reread Frankenstein, reread some of Wollstonecraft's work and some things I hadn't read. Um, she has a book where she travels um her her first daughter she um the ma the father of her first child she was not married he didn't really acknowledge them and she followed his ships through scandinavia through this through the seas just with her baby by herself Whoa. like post french revolution hmm she was traveling um, and he still ended up rejecting her, but she wrote these, it's actually probably one of my favorite works by her. She just wrote her um, observations of the people where she was going and what she noticed. Hmm. Um, and so some of those observations figured in the poems, although when I wrote this book, it was probably triple what it is. And I ended up cutting hmm. I cut out a lot. I mean, there were wow. so many fascinating details, especially Shelley. Her life mm -hmm. is yeah. incredibly yeah. compelling. 
like some like really shocking details. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was hard to not, oh, you know, I, I really want to write this poem. But in the end, I served the book and I eliminated anything that didn't fit what was an art mm-hmm. for in the book for me. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you talk about soap operas. Yeah. The I mean, the book pretty much ends like, you know, as far as tracing her life at like 25 or 26, right? I don't think I mean she didn't live a long life I don't believe right actually she she did live a decent long life and one of her four children survived and lived Mm -hmm. and it's you know that's when she started writing some of her novels and they were you know they had a life that was relatively crisis free right like so much of her pain and suffering was was in you know childhood to exactly Shelley, percy's death yeah exactly you said it more eloquently than myself it's you know i mean frankenstein was written what like 19 or 20 well i started i think at 18 and ended at 2021 mm-hmm. she'd lost um you know percy right by by 24 25 26 mm-hmm. that's what it was so much in that time you talk about losing you know losing the babies losing children um the whole thing with her father oh my gosh soap opera city for sure unfortunately it's real life right it'd be very compelling if it were fiction the the title is yours creature yours comma creature is i love some i love some um some of your rationale on that is that like are we are, are we speaking to the creature to frankenstein's creature is it is it like a like a yours truly is it signed by the creature how do you how do you kind of imagine the title I think the title for me is evoking the idea that Shelley viewed herself as monstrous Mm. as the creature. Mm -hmm. While a lot of the letters are addressed to the creature, but she, um, I mean, she killed her mother with her birth. Right. Her mother died 10 days later. Um, And when we think about, Frankenstein, um, Frankenstein's creator, um, I mean, the monster, Frank, sorry, Victor Frankenstein mm-hmm. created the monster. Mm-hmm. He runs from him right? after he makes him because he's too grotesque. Mm-hmm. And then he just, you know, he's so terrible, Victor Frankenstein. And he just lives in this denial as the monster hurts and kills all these people he loves and he just lets him wreak havoc. Hmm. You know, some of the, again, it's in the epistolary form and a lot of the letters, some of the letters, I don't know if I'd say a lot, are signed very formally. Again, you know, she's writing to her mother and it's dear mother. And I get it, you know, maybe the time period, maybe, you know, Great Britain, but even just like she signs it like Mary Shelley. I wonder about like one of them is, you know, signed your daughter, Mary Shelley. Is there something about like introducing herself to her mom? She didn't know her mom. Was there something about like a formality that comes when you don't know someone so well? Yeah, I think that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Um, one, I think during that time period, families weren't particularly warm and fuzzy. Hmm. But I think this was accentuated for her. Um, 
that she didn't get much affection. Well, clearly she got no affection from her mother, but she right. didn't get affection from her father. And there was a rigidity to the relationships and a formality to the relationships. Um, and I think a garden guardedness that I wanted mm. in the poems. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, you know, you have these, would you call them subtitles? Like the, a line from the red radius of your womb went dark. Would you call those chapters? How would you title those? They were not originally in the manuscript when I submitted it. I had it, I did have it broken up by the current sections. Uh -huh. And I didn't have the, it's it's hard to tell, but the artwork that separates the sections is some asemic writing by another poet in the press, Christine Snodgrass. Okay. But originally I had just um, separated the sections without any naming or lines. And I had created like images from punctuation. And I think they were just too weird. And the publisher was like, you know, we love this book, but we don't know what's going on here. And I, I had to agree. Um, so she suggested pulling a line from each section to give it a heading to help it, you know, open it up and clarify it for the readers. Okay. And I thought that was great. So I, I was happy to let, I mean, when you're a poet, I think, Maybe not all poets feel this way, but I'm delighted with someone who's reading that closely and is attentive and willing to collaborate. I don't feel this like, well, you sure. can't touch the work or yeah. I don't have that sense. Yeah. The The first um, heading then is, quote, a line from the red radius of your womb went dark. The first poem is um, the, the night that the comet came down was also the night of Mary Shelley's birth. Mm -hmm. And it was what he said, you know, 12, 13 days later, the Wollstonecraft, the mother died, mm -hmm. you know, from the infection, from the afterbirth. One of the, the lines in the first poem was, quote, I wanted to crawl back into the black interior of you, womb scratched by an animal, but they wouldn't let me. A little bit further on, my cutting tooth made death a custom house. And again, that was the one sign, you know, your daughter, Mary Shelley. Um, the The second poem... I was I wanted to read just a little bit of it. It's from page four for those who are maybe listening. Obviously, you read it the best. So I just wanted to point out something. Well, yeah, it was page four. It was again connecting the the mother and daughter. Dear mother, outside the door while your mother raped while your father raped your mother, you stood like a little god. I hold a stone like it's your hand. The house is gone that killed you. Red walled womb of mo mo the color. Mm -hmm. I floated I floated inside until it bled like wood and took a sideways position. No upright girl. My arm beat the rib cage with your own urge. Your daughter, Mary Shelley. The the line, the second stanza is, I hold a stone like it's your hand. Is that like a, like revenge for like what had happened to her mother? Like kind of avenging the way that she was treated by her, by her parents. I hold a stone like it's your hand. I was really interested in that line. Um. I think two things are happening in that line. I didn't conceive of it as revenge. I conceived of it more as a longing for in the absence of human comfort, uh -huh. seeking comfort from an object that can be held. Hmm. Yeah. And it's actually, you know, when we talk about persona poems, 
you're still you still bring in your own experience mm. and of course i you know i did a lot of research and i i read a lot but i also imagined like this is something i just put there i don't know that she sure. ever did that i'm sure she never did that uh-huh. um that's why I, i'm not writing a biography <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm free to to lie um but that was something i did once when i was young and so uh-huh. that's where you see the the poet using persona but mm-hmm. then pulling in some experience there's, there are a million memes on social media right about the poet as speaker and like no we're not the same yes we are <laughs> okay interesting <laughs> so then i wonder about the 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 opening lines of that poem then about the 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 father raped the mother and just the hor- the horrific things there is that just uh kind of setting the the scene for like a lot of the continuing traumas well I mean, because of the time when rape wasn't particularly a crime, certainly not spousal rape. Mm. Um, I don't have like a proof of that. But in one of the biographies I read, it was pretty implied um, that he was violent and aggressive and Mm. that she didn't endure um, witnessing a lot of his behavior towards her mother, that she was witness to this kind of domestic violence um and when you read godwin who was uh wollstonecraft's husband not mm-hmm. the not the man i spoke of that whose ship she followed but right. uh Shelley, mary shelley's father godwin the writer um he wrote a book about her life which mary shelley read yeah. and he included quite a a lot of her intimate story mm-hmm. um her friendships and her love affairs and suicide uh, attempts, right? Yes. Suicide yeah. attempts. So Shelley, Mary Shelley would have had access to hmm. things about her mother's life. Um, and we know that Mary Wollstonecraft had a sister who was in a very violent marriage hmm. and Wollstonecraft went and rescued her sister she likes took her out of the home and saved right, her right. and then the baby dies afterward mm. so and and that's part of wollstonecraft's writing is you know women not having autonomy to mm-hmm. make choices and keep themselves safe or even dress themselves mm. without help middle class upper middle class women mm. thank you for that the the second heading is raised by a dictum but not a man mary shelley was raised with the with the strictness that you talked about a new stepmom um, who she did not get along with to say the least. One of the lines from the poem in that, one of the poems in that section is quote in the three stories of the Skinner house, my stepmother is not you. Just this idea that like, you know, and speaking to her mother and speaking to Mary Wollstonecraft, it's like, you know, my stepmother could never, could never take your place. So, yeah, I mean, as we've already talked about, one of the, one of the themes that comes through for sure is, is loss. Um, I mean, literally, 13 days into her life, she loses her mother, um, you know, with longing is, is a phrase that's, I think, repeated throughout, um, you know, sometimes in the, in the signatures, the, um, what's the term? Like, I know you call it a salutation, like dear so-and-so what's the term for like yours truly. Isn't there a term that I'm forgetting? I, I only know the term signature. I can't yeah, think. Yeah. yeah. Signing off. I don't know. Sure. You Email. Know, we've lost some of these terms maybe mm-hmm. i'll think of it after the interview right but right 
you know, ideas of loss. Um, she in in her letters is writing to P, who I believe is Percy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, why the initials at times? I believe she does initials for her for her father. There's a G reference later on. Mm-hmm. Why? Why the initials? Is that just kind of a a craft thing, or is there something more to it? Well, G is Godwin. Her father P right. is Percy, and I think this happened on an unconscious level, mm-hmm. but one of the reviewers pointed out that all the men are unnamed yeah. and all of the men are initials mm-hmm. and the men are also not um, recipients of any letters. Correct. Yeah. And I think I did want to diminish Percy Shelley a little bit, um, mm-hmm. not to diminish his genius as a poet, mm-hmm. but it's not his story. Yeah. And, you know, she, she had to share in his shadow quite a bit. Mm. Um, And so, and he, he was so destructive Mm -hmm. to her and so was her father. Mm. And so they don't feature as named people. They may get in. I mean, Godwin might be mentioned by name once or twice, but And that was one of those artistic things that happened. Mm-hmm. And I did consistently without thinking. Yeah. So I definitely, I write from instinct often. Mm. And then I can, you know, I can go back and move things around, but that was just a, an instinct that served mm. what the work is doing, which is it's a, it's a book about women for women. Men can read it. I hope they like it, but. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, um, your instinct was right on. It seems, I mean, they seem to be like footnotes as as they should be, right? And like you said in the story, the characters aren't necessarily fleshed out, which could, was a weakness in other pieces. But it's it's not. That's the point here, right? Yeah. Well, they were absent. The men are absent. Sure. Especially the part of the poems, the part of her life that the poems are really centered on uh-huh. um, childbirth and loss. Percy mm-hmm. would just disappear. Yeah. You know, after her their their baby died, he ran away with her stepsister for a while. So she was often abandoned at her most painful moments. And mm-hmm. her father abandoned her for most of her adult life um, because she wasn't married. She and Percy weren't married initially. He was married to someone else yeah. when they got together and he abandoned his wife and their child. She also committed suicide. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, he doesn't come off, you know, it's, they're men of their time, mm-hmm. aristocratic men of his time. Um, but he still did some pretty cruel dehumanizing things to the women that he was with. Yeah. The The poem was called Dear Rejection, 1815, or maybe that was the, the, the salutation in one of the lines is something about in threes they came and left. Now I believe is that the time that she lost one of her children, one of her babies. Let me just go to that poem. In threes they came and left. You know, I when I wrote this poem, I wasn't thinking about the babies. Uh huh. I was thinking about the family, the mother, the father, okay. and then Percy. In threes they came, the mother, the father, the holy right. one. But it's an interesting yeah. parallel that. Yeah. That three, because the babies don't reject her. Mm. 
I mean, the mother doesn't reject her necessarily either, but it's a different kind of alienation. Yeah. Yeah. And just, I mean, that, that, you know, obviously is connected to guilt. Um, You know, I can't even imagine, you know, the fact that she knows that, you know, she was the reason for her mother's death, not her fault, but you know, it's one of those where rationally you say it wasn't your fault. There's nothing you could do about it. But you know, there's obviously the guilt that comes through in some of the poems. One of the lines I forget exactly, but um, it's just about the difference between like her being sent away, like she gets sent away, maybe when she's like early teens, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, it's it's like almost you know worse than like being left behind. It's just like sent away. <laughs> um, one of the early poems is is quote her. One of the lines is quote her her referring to her stepmom. Her latch on me is fixed, and I learned to regard myself with her revulsion. That's that's some incredible diction right there. I, I learned to regard her, myself with her revulsion. I mean, doesn't that just speak to all of us and you know self-esteem mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. internalized from external sources, right? Yeah, exactly. Quote, I am the apple of his eye. I am the reader of his work. His frown can collapse my spine. I believe that's talking about Percy or her father. Godwin, her father. Godwin, yeah. Godwin. One of the lines referring to Godwin, quote, are you mad that I took your blank? That Godwin was mad with his, quote, glacial love, you know, and a child can kill his mother. Are you mad that I took your blank? Is that kind of like, I don't know who she was to you, Godwin. You know, why the blank there? Again, that was one of those um, just strong instinctual choices, I think. I didn't want to be li- I didn't want to be limited by saying I took your wife, mm-hmm. I took your lover, I mm-hmm. took your best friend. Um, what did she take from him was something, some enormity mm. that couldn't be um named. That sure. couldn't because his grief must have been enormous. Mm. He he clearly loved Wollstonecraft and he wrote this book about her life. Um it, and this is another side idea, though, of, you know, the creation destroying destroying the maker from the Godwin mm. perspective, you know, that yeah. someone else is hurt by what's been made mm. that you see in the Frankenstein novel. Obviously, she missed out on her mother's touch, her mother's love. Um, you know, she cried at she felt like her first affection, Mary Shelley, of course, that is, she felt like her first affection was from a cow's wet black eye. <laughs> so moving. She tells her mom in the letters of her lover, Percy, while she's pregnant later on, quote, I learned your voice and tie it to me. I thought that would again was so moving. Am I correct that uh, they, like their love was consummated basically like at, their, at her mother's grave, Percy and yeah. Mary Shelley? That's the legend. I mean, I guess there's no way to prove it, but they used to have their trysts there because their relationship was not supported by, he was, he was a married man and she was 15. So the story goes that, and this was in multiple biographies that they would go to her mother's grave to have sex um, which was not far away. Her father had taken her there to teach her to read also mm. by touching the letters. And Wollstonecraft was an interesting part of her relationship with Percy Shelley, mm-hmm. that they both were sort of enamored with her mind and who she was and her writings. And when mm. they ran away together, 
um, and they also brought the stepsister with them. Mm-hmm. They ran away to France to to sort of see what she had experienced in France and to mm-hmm. experience her journey through France. And they would read her books while they were there together. Wow. She and Percy did have a you know a meeting of true minds relationship, mm-hmm. meeting of intellectual equals. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's like you talk about, you know, she read her mother's work. She read about her mother and her father's work. I mean, there's definitely a lot of homage paid. Um, you know, she sees her mom as a hero in so many ways that she'd freed Eliza, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the many actions she'd done and and just obviously her her mind, her, it's obviously so overdone, but just this idea that we say now, like, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft was so ahead of her time, right. you know, but that's, you know, that's the way that Mary Shelley saw it as well. And obviously there's that enduring grief for her mom, um, a beautiful phrase or, or a couple lines, quote, we are both inside a den of grief, but just five years before I sat at father's table, tuned to the sharpness of my stepmother, sipping from a childhood cup of blue and my chest cabinet that held a single shelf for you. Um, that we are both inside, you know, again, speaking to her husband, to Percy, but just this idea of her quote chest cabinet holding a single shelf for, for Mary Wollstonecraft is, is very beautiful, very moving. Men don't stick around too much, as you said. They're often violent in the collection. They're often flighty. They're also often exciting, right? The the idea you talked about how Percy disappears when babies die is literally one of the lines from, from there. She wrote that after meeting and loving him, Percy, no one lived happily ever after. She also writes about the light and energy of Percy, a little flame. What did you get in your in writing about it in kind of semi-fictionalizing the relationship with Percy and Mary or in your historical research? What did you get about why she was attracted to him? You talked about a meeting of minds. Is was there there was this light of passion and truth, this this idea that he was always trying to be more enlightened. What what was it that really draw drew her together? And did did it last very long? I mean, I can only speculate, sure. but I, I think Given the childhood that she had, it must have been intoxicating to be seen, hmm. to be seen by someone so bright who was a gifted poet. But there are these little details in the biography, um, like he had a love letter to his wife where he just crossed out her name and then he put <laughs> Mary's name, <laughs> yeah, right. you know. Wow. Um, and that was early on. Classy, so early, huh? Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of evidence that they, co- you know, they shared their work with each other. They gave each other feedback on their work mm. and that, you know, it wasn't simply the abandonment. I, I just, it seems like he was child, you know, emotionally immature and a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were really kids. I mean, there should be a movie. Yeah. There should yeah. be a great movie that would be probably poorly done, but, <laughs> you know, with Byron and. Right. So I do think they loved each other and I'm, I'm only guessing. Yeah. And I think, I think it's very easy to love flawed people. I think mm-hmm. it's easy to love people who see you if you haven't been seen. Right. I think 
men know this, but I think many women are very familiar with this feeling. Mm. Um, even despite your, even when you recognize flaws, it just, it's very intoxicating to be mm. looked at. Everyone wants to be looked at. Mm. And then she got free of that house with the stepmother. Mm-hmm. So there was a certain degree of getting free, yeah. being on her own, being independent, but it came at such a cost because you couldn't, you know, be with an, a married man as a 16 year old girl. Mm. She was a social pariah for the beginning of their time together. Yeah. I feel like some of your best images are about just, you talk about cost. I mean, there's a cost to, to, to marry Shelly and so many other women in just in the storyline after her miscarriage quote, I'm sewn from gut to brain with scraps of men. If I could snap, I would. (laughs) Every woman is damaged and witness strung invisibly from baby to man. Um, Remind me again. uh, Fanny was a step, her stepsister, half sister. Yeah. Her half sister, Fanny was Wollstonecraft's daughter. Um, from the lover in France that right. she brought with her on these trip on this trip through Sweden. And Fanny remained in Godwin's house. Fanny, it's speculated, was also in love with Percy Shelley mm. and was was a daughter that was even more ignored than Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley was Godwin's own daughter, and he provided her with a lot of books and viewed her as intelligent. And Fanny, I think he took Fanny in, who was this, you know, illegitimate child from this, from Wollstonecraft's first love. And he kept her as his own daughter. Mm. Um, But she clearly suffered pretty severe depression and she killed herself. But when she killed herself, she didn't even kill herself at home. She like politely, Mm. rented a hotel room Mm. so she didn't inconvenience this is how i interpret this she did not inconvenience people um and mary shelley wanted to go to that hotel um i think to mourn her sister she was curious and the godwin really urged her not to do it Mm. Well, yeah, I don't know if it was literally right before, but you you kind of quote Fanny as saying, again, so sad and and so so resonant this this idea of like having to be polite even to the point of even to the the moment of death, but like saying thank you and I'm sorry, mm-hmm. um, just so much about how women, you know, are forced to not not take up space, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Man. And that, you know, you know this as a teacher. Our our girl students still do this. My mine apolo- yes. I'm sorry. I'm yes. sorry. I'm yes. sorry. And you know, clearly we've come a long way since you know 19th century. But mm-hmm. um, girl, my girl students are still apologizing mm. for needing to ask a question, for coming after school for extra help. Right. And um, the boys aren't. So we're still we're still raising our children with certain kinds of gender Hmm. um, expectations. And I, you know, I pay, I try to pay a lot of attention to that. Um, Yeah. But it's deep. It's really deep. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, we've talked about, I mean, there's so many traumas throughout the 
talking about Mary Wollstonecraft, quote, wrote a ream of neck verse to stem your father's voice raging through the walls. Um, I looked up neck verse. Okay. That was so interesting. Right. And it's like this idea of a verse usually consisting of the first lines of a Latin version of the 51st Psalm formally set before an accused person claiming benefit of clergy so that the person might vindicate his claim by an intelligent reading aloud of the verse before examiners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, just this idea of like being before like a, almost like bef before a, a firing squad or something, right? Yeah, I mean, I I mainly just liked the sound of the word, mm -hmm. um, but I because clearly she didn't write neck verse, but yeah. I think there was this sense of having to defend mm -hmm. being accused, doing the being do being wrong in so many people's perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the traumas that, you know, she she being Mary Shelley refers to it as in the Scottish time, you know, which is when she was sent away. Mm -hmm. um, Coleridge, right, who was another who was one of those intellectuals who was always around the house and kind of informally a, a great, uh, you know, a teacher for Mary Shelley. He referred to, quote, the cadaverous silence of the Godwin children. Mm -hmm. You know, so much going on. We talked about suicide, the loss of the newborns and, and miscarriage for for Mary. I want to ask, I want to kind of finish up by asking about the the creature. She okay. writes, she, Mary Shelley writes to the creature. You already talked about how, you know, Victor Frankenstein flees after the creature is created. And there's connections there to the men in, in Mary Shelley's life. Is this, is there some, is there like a connection to like, you know, like Kafka and this idea of a creature? I mean, is does Mary Shelley consider herself to be the creature? you know, that people are are fleeing from? Is the creature a, an amalgamum of all different, you know, people in her life? Um, is the creature seen as someone with no no real agency in her in his or her life or its life? I, I wonder about the creature and Mary's connection to it or him. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the creature has agency, but I think the creature is on the outside and the creature, I think Shelley identifies, Mary Shelley identifies with the creature, but I think there's a very female identification, even though the creature is right. masculine, there's a very female identification with the body. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. I did want to point out that line. Yeah. It was one of the lines in the letter to the creature was quote, how female I made you. So I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, it's funny because I I did this in my second book, which was a, a feminist Moby Dick. I made the whale mm. feminist, <laughs> feminist too. Um, I think because it's hunted, because uh, it's pursued and it's used. Mm. Um, and the creature is masculine, but the creature is um, so vulnerable. The creature is unwanted. The creature has no home. The creature is disgusting to mm -hmm. its mate and you know you know you're when you write about the past or you write about things from a biography you're just you're having to create and imagine so i say that on the outset that mm -hmm. but i when you read about her having this miscarriage where she almost died except percy saved her by yeah dunking her body into a bathtub of ice amazing you know but you think about how much physical pain these women went through um yes 
how much blood, because even when we think about women's pain now and how much it's disregarded or how much you can't talk about it. And then you think, but at least I'm alive in 20. Well, it would have been better to be alive in 2021 pre Dobbs, but this, the vulnerability of the body and the monstrosity of the body, that it's horrific to the men. Like mm-hmm. they're, they've, they're parent to this baby, to this child, but they're not willing to look at it. Mm-hmm. The dead child that it's horrific i wonder if you've read you're talking about like the the moby dick uh re-rendering you did um I've, i i have not have you by any chance read there's the great gatsby was redone i think by the iowa mfa program they did it in a, like a feminist perspective no it was done by a, the program or a single i feel writer? i feel like it was done by like a group of people like it was yeah yeah it's one that I, I definitely wanted to get to i think it came out in the last couple of years yeah i hadn't heard of that you talked about the 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 monstrosity or the disgusting way it's often you know women's bodies are often seen by males in this particular case Mary Shelley how you know she was for things that were not her fault she was blamed and um, towards the end there's quote a tug of tissue a knot of grief and still I had to beg for what was mine the story is that her husband that that Percy died in a in the in Italy I guess in the water right. Drowning? Yep, he drowned. She chose not to watch the cremation. And, and am I right that like men, I think Byron, I forget who else was with him, like literally like took parts of his body? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was a group of intellectuals and they were like, here we are, the smart dudes. And we're going to take pieces of our brilliant friend because we're brilliant. Uh-huh. And she wanted his heart, which she had to really ask to get, but she did not go to his cremation on the shore either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't really know what to, to say about that last part. Of <laughs> I guess it kind of stands in juxtaposition to what you're saying with the idea of women um, and their bodies and so much physical pain, but that, um, you know, that's, that's a life. All those things that happened in those 25, 26 years, not even all of her life. It's amazing what she went through in all those times in just 25 years, it does look like she died at what, 53, 54 years old. Mm-hmm. Is there a part two to this collection? The the golden years? Um, I guess is my way of asking him any other projects you might want to share with us that you got coming up. There's no part two. Um, I'm hoping I'm finished with uh, 19, the 19th century. Um, uh-huh. I am working on a fifth book that's a little bit more actually brings in some of my French heritage. Mm. It's got lineage and it's a little more autobiographical. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm working on that manuscript now. And then I'm sort of curious about trying some new genre. Mm. Just poetry is, um, I'm a poet, but I'd like to try some creative nonfiction all right. Because I've been going great guns with the poetry for the last seven years. Sure. Yeah. You said I'm a poet. I I, I heard that as I'm appalled. I'm like, no, you're appalled <laughs> by poetry. I'm a poet. She's but okay. yeah. The number of Wikipedia tabs I have open right now, the 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 rabbit holes I went down with Byron and and Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley and that one Italian guy, I forget his name, but he was of a Italian father and British mother and you know, who are connected maybe tangentially to all this story. Amazing. And, um, you know, I'm just so impressed how you're able to, I mean, the language is is beautiful and resonant. 
the the metaphors, the imagery is just just jumps off the page, but it's also, you know, so tied into a real historical fact. So you're talking about, you know, it's something to be great for a movie. Maybe you're the one to do it. <laughs> okay, that was maybe that was a no with that laugh. <laughs> but I just want to thank you so much for uh, for talking to me and wish you great luck with your creative nonfiction and poetry and all the other work you do. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy your summer. You do the same. Thanks everyone for listening to episode 195 with Jessica Cuello. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa. Find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P01. While you're there, also look for Jessica Cuello. Again, that's C-U-E-L-L-O. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills of Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills of Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. This month's episode is with Daniel Allen Cox, whose memoir is so resonant, so emotional, and so dang good. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental. And the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Check out the next episode, which airs on August 1st. Chloe Cooper-Jones is the guest and a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. She's also a Pulitzer Prize finalist in feature writing for Fearing for His Life, a profile of Ramsey Orta, the man who filmed the killing of Eric Garner, and the recipient of the 2020 Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant and the 2021 Howard Foundation grant from Brown University, with both of Chloe's grants in support of her 2023 book, Easy Beauty. Again, this episode will air on August 1st. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Jessica Cuello, whose work, like yours, Creature, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.